please. I'm just going to read from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and show ourselves glad in him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are all the depths of the earth, and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands prepared the dry land. O come, let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Amen. Justin, thank you so very, very much. Abba, Father, bless your word. Bless the teaching. Bless this church as we seek you out and to follow you and love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Quick review from last Sunday. We're covering how archaeology reveals uh, New Testament history and that we have reliable documents in the New Testament. Uh, kids, um, where's Zezé? Zezé, I want you guys to draw. I want you to try to draw something about creation. Maybe a dinosaur? T-Rex, maybe? T-Rex? What do you guys, creation? What would creation look like? What would it look like if there was dust on the moon? What would that look like? Or maybe a comet. Why don't you guys think about that and, and get ready to show me at the end of the service. So I want to focus today on physical sciences, earth sciences, astrophysicists. Uh, and look at what's the evidence of God? Is there any evidence? Uh, does God leave fingerprints? If he does, what would it look like? To begin with, let's talk about the golden ratio. Now, some of you guys are super math brains, and this is like, this is so boring, this is so old. But a man named Fibonacci developed a sequence that if you take, start with, start with zero, add one to it, one plus zero is one. Right, one plus one is two, three plus two is five, eight plus five is 13, etc. And that sequence formed a ratio named the golden ratio, 1.618 and, and some numbers. What's fascinating about that, it creates this arc, this circular arc. What is amazing is that it is seen in all of creation. You're about to see the golden ratio. By the way, for the math brains, it's going to look something like this. Here we go. A shell. Sunflowers. Mathematically, that is 1.618 as a ratio. Mathematically. Pine cones. Spiral galaxies, the exact same arc, the exact same curve. Another view of a spiral galaxy. And even the human face. By the way, that right there, that comes out of Johns Hopkins Medical School is where that comes from. Okay. So, um, what does that reveal? What does this golden ratio reveal? Uh, two things. Number one, that the universe is profoundly ordered. Does that make sense? It's very precise, like a brilliantly crafted watch. Tremendous precision, okay? 
How did that happen? Did it happen because uh, is, is, is extreme precision the byproduct of chaos? We're in class. What do you think? It, it would be illogical, right? Extreme precision as a byproduct of chaos. Is extreme precision the byproduct of randomness? Not at all. And so, obviously, I am a creationist, right? I'm a theist. So I know that God created the heavens and the earth. And God did so with such brilliant, mind-bending precision that these physical laws that God designed and ordained and set in motion are seen everywhere. And so the golden ratio is one of the most profound indicators of the fingerprints of God. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is addressing a church that's experiencing worship chaos. You've got a group of people over here, and they're just babbling on in tongues and babbling on. And another group of people over here saying, you know what, I can speak tongues better than you. And I do prophecy better than you. And they were literally having speech Olympics, speech competitions at Corinth. And who could out-talk the other? And Paul comes down hard on them, on their worshiping, and literally making an idol out of their own speech-based gifts, which includes uh, heavenly language, angelic languages, bat glossolalia, literally it can mean to babble and just throwing syllables together, all these things, or fancy rhetorical speech. And Paul says, look, this has got to stop, because in verse 33 he says, because God is not the author of confusion. God is a God of order and precision. So, um, all right, let's move on. The lunar recession rate, I'm assuming you're familiar with this, that the the earth is literally moving away. The moon is moving away from the earth. And it's doing so at a fixed rate. Now, if you go back about 6,000 years, the earth would approximately be about 750 feet closer to earth. Which would not cause any problems. Right? But, if we are billions, multi-billions of years old, what does that do with the moon and the earth distance? What happens? Did anybody see the movie Interstellar? Does anybody remember this scene? You remember that? You remember that? Wow. They're on a planet that is next to a, a, a black hole, and the gravity in that black hole is so intense, it distorts time. And the tidal forces on this planet, this watery planet, are so great that you have crushing tsunami tidal forces every, every few minutes. And obviously, in this extremely well-done scene, their job is to how, how do you get in that thing, so jumpstart that little spaceship, and get off that thing before they're crushed. All right. If the moon is even half as close... <laughs> We would be destroyed by tidal forces. Okay, Lisa spent time in um, England. Where did you go? Where there was there were tidal warnings, and you could drive out, but you had to get back. Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne. Yeah. 
The tidal forces even now are such that in certain parts of the country, you can drive out when it's low tide, but you better get back when it's high tide or you're gonna be stranded on the island. So, all right. The earth magnetic field. This is a tough one. And by the way, everything that I'm sharing regarding science information, I'm telling you this is not my wheelhouse. Um, I feel far more comfortable with a paranoid schizophrenic in my office than I do, or somebody with acute depressive disorder, something than I do with this. And you're, listen, you all here are far smarter than I'm ever going to be. But uh, there's counter arguments. Can we be honest? There's counter arguments. Some of them don't wash. Some are pretty tough, scientifically, counter-arguments. For example, the Earth's magnetic field is literally uh, weakening. All right. Now, if you extrapolate backwards, by the way, all these things are about extrapolating backwards, assuming a fixed rate, and you go backwards in time. That's what these all are about. But the Earth's magnetic field is weakening, and if you go straight back three billion years, the magnetic force is so intense, what would it do to the Earth? It flattens it like a pancake and it destroys itself. So the counter argument against that, which is really interesting, is that it's not a fixed rate. It flux. It's in flux. And it will weaken like, like an Energizer bunny battery. It weakens for a bit, but then somehow it's recharged. And then it weakens for a bit and it recharges. So therefore, the counter argument is... The magnetic field is sustainable in flux over three, four, five billion years. Okay, there's your counter argument, but I want to go, who's recharging the batteries? Do you know what it, if, if you saw my garage, in fact, I think David Port, you're about to see it. No pictures and no talking about what you see. He's going to pick up a table saw that burned up. He's, he's going to fix the saw. Do you know the work, the energy I have to expend to keep order in my garage? You're not. You get it. Do you know the energy and the physical dynamics of recharging the batteries on the earth? It's like you have to create a miracle to, 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 to address the first miracle. Even the counter arguments are such that, well, it would be miraculous if there's this recharging system that could do that over three, four, five billion years. The fact is, if you get the test tube out and you engage empirical process, the Earth's magnetic field is weakening. And if you go back in time, that's a serious problem. Here's the fourth one, ocean sediment. Right now, the average layer of ocean sediment is about 1,500 feet. And there are unbelievable amounts of sediment being dumped into the Earth from the, from the, in the ocean, from the surface of the Earth in cosmic dust, billions of tons, I know it sounds crazy, billions of tons of sediment are being dumped into the earth. Now, as tectonic, tectonic plates shift and move, uh, some of that is, is uh, absorbed into uh, more toward the core of the earth, and so it, rates vary. But again, with the amount of, of sediment coming in, if you go back four or five billion years old, the sediment would be so deep, far more deeper than, than 1,500 feet. Human populations, I gotta read this one, this is really good. There's a quote from a, a, an atheist uh, about human populations. And this is what, uh, this is essentially what is being said. 
first the scientific data, um, using statistics and, and measurements, one can arrive at an estimate of how many people would be predicted to be on the earth at different points in history. For example, when you account for war, disease, famine, and assuming humans have been on the planet for only one million years. Do you know how small one million years is when you compare it against the full evolutionary theory of history at billions of years? One million is not that much. Let's just play with that for a bit. Rather than the, the, the big numbers, we find that there should be 10 to the 2,000th power of humans on earth living and dying. 10 to the 2,000th power. All right? There are, however, not even 10 to the 10th power people on earth. And in fact, the universe couldn't handle that many human bodies in our visible universe. Okay. It is absolutely fascinating that if the earth is billions and billions of years old, what would the fossil record feature in tremendous numbers? What would be the most common fossil you'd find? Human. Human. This is what the secular atheist uh, PhD said. Even after over a century of searching for, for homo sapien fossils, one evolutionary scientist admitted the fossils that decorate our family tree are so scarce that there are still more scientists than specimens. If we were that old, billions of years old, there would be a tremendous record in the fossil layers. The faint sun paradox. As helium is converted, hydrogen is converted on the sun, the sun heats up. The sun's getting hotter, just like the Earth's magnetic field is weakening. The sun's getting hotter as the sun does what it does in the process of the exchange between helium and hydrogen and all the substances on the sun. If it's getting hotter, and it is, and it's measurable, and it is, if you go back in time, what's the sun doing? It's cooler. It's cooler. And if you go back a short period of time in comparison to the, the billions of his theory, do you know, you know what the average temperature is on Earth? 31 degrees. Not a sustainable planet. If you go back, say, a million years, Earth is not sustainable because it is so cold and so dark. Uh, Isaiah, you'll love this. You ready? Scientists found a T-Rex. He's got T-Rexes on his shirt, by the way. Uh, scientists found T-Rex bones, and Justin, who's been at one of the greatest museums, dinosaur museums in the world, right out of Alberta, they found soft tissue. And you're looking at it right now. Soft tissue. All right. Now, if that fossil was in the ground for how many billions of years... Would that tissue be soft? What are the odds? What are the odds? You get the point, right? Uh, comet contradiction. This is another fascinating uh, paradox. 
There's roughly 3,000 comets that are zooming around us right now, right? A comet is essentially made of dirt, rock, ice, right? As it makes its big elliptical loop and it passes closer to the sun and away from the sun, uh, the, the radiation and heat literally starts decaying and breaking off particles and you get the tail uh, appearance of the comet, right? You know what the average lifespan of a comet is? About 10,000 years, right? If the Earth is billions of years old, how can those things make a lap like that and, and not go away? They would fizzle out like a, like, no, it's gone. There would be comets. So the Earth cannot be that old. That's what that argument is. Number nine, uh, continental erosion. Uh, you go back a million years and uh, forward, and right now America should be sheared off flat, just flat. Think of erosion like this. If you make, ladies, you make a cake, or guys, you make a cake, and you, you put on the icing, the beautiful buttercream icing, and it's kind of lumped up a little bit at the top, maybe. Over time, what does that icing do? It flattens out because of gravity, right? Uh, you may notice this on your yard. Those of you who do edging, you'll edge, make a nice clean edge up against a curb or something, but over time, what does the, what does the surface of the lawn do? It keeps flattening out and it'll push tighter against the curb. Got to edge it again. Make sense? The Earth is doing the very same thing. The Earth is getting flatter over time. And the erosion rate is such that, you know, you could put 10 Americas in, on the Earth space, in terms of, of uh, surface area in just in like a million years. So the rate of erosion is demonstrating that we cannot be billions of years old. Lastly, uh, ocean salinity, just what you would expect. Uh, what, what is unique about the Dead Sea and salt? What is that? You can float on it. Why? Why? What's it, sir? Very, very dense. Why? What about hydrogen and oxygen and, and H2O and sodium? What evaporates faster? Hydrogen and oxygen will evaporate faster than sodium, right? And because there's no water going into the Dead Sea, it's literally stagnant. It stays there, and the water is evaporating, leaving the salt to be, to be more dense, have a higher density rate. And so it's so salty, you can float on it, right? And you have to bathe to get that salt off of you, right? It'll dry your skin out. It's the same concept with the oceans. There is so much sodium being dumped in the, into the ocean that when you, when you calculate the whole process of evaporation, rain, all these things, you go back billions of years and the ocean would be so salty, marine life would not be sustained. Could not survive. So these things point to a young earth, essentially is what I'm talking about. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap that up. I want everyone to turn to uh, Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. Paul is setting up a series of arguments 
in Romans that is intended to literally unify the non-Christian world in all the churches and prepare them for the long haul of doing ministry. He wants endorsement from the churches out of Rome because he wants to head to, uh, he wants to do bigger mission work. And Paul writes about the reality of God and the coming judgment of God, the wrath of God. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. A couple of comments and then I want to turn this over to you guys. Um, suppression of truth. When Paul talks about the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does he mean by that? It's a little hard to understand, but context gives us, gives us what we need. Um, is, it, is it suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Is Paul addressing a moral problem, like a dirty thought, clicking something on your iPhone that you shouldn't click on, that kind of a thing, telling a little lie, and we're looking for, like, we're avoiding moral obligation or something. Does Paul mean that? God is really, really upset at people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I don't think that's what he has in mind. I think there's something much, much bigger going on. Okay. Uh, does it mean uh, people who suppress the truth and disagree with creationism? <laughs> I believe in a six-day creation. All right. Uh, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. And it says, Echad, Echad Yom. He did this on the first day. Echad is one, like one, two, three, four, five. Sheli is two. Shel Ilchi is three. So on day one, Echad Yom. Yom is a solar day. It's a 24-hour period of time. And God did this on this Yom. And then he did that on that Yom. And, and there's six days of creation. All right? I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that because God's word says it, so for me it's settled. But I also believe that, that creation, what we just covered, points to that. Now, uh, I, I was sharing with Nathan earlier that the, uh, uh, there's various Christians who struggle with trying to, trying to marry science to faith. They struggle with that union. And, and so they come up with workarounds. And here's a workaround for those who Christians, or supposedly they're Christians, who claim in, to believe in theistic evolution. Scott, what's this evolution? What is that? You pretty much take the scientific method, you know, evolution. Right. And you take the Bible to conform. So in the case of your yom, they say, well, it's just a metaphor. That yom is thousands or millions of years. 
and they go and they twist scripture for the sake of right. finding their putting evolution into scripture. Yep, there you go. So, do you bend scripture to fit science, or do you bend science to fit scripture? There's a t- there's a lot of tension there. So, in one workaround, it's called theistic evolution, and as he described it, the day-age theory. So six days really don't represent six 24-hour periods of time. They represent eons. So the first day could have been millions and millions and millions of years. And on day two, millions and millions and millions of years. And day three, million, you get the idea. It's a theistic evolution. God's kind of sprinkling his presence over evolution. Right? That's one workaround. Another workaround is called the gap theory. Here's what the gap theory is like. Okay, 24-hour period, all right, can't argue with the facts. You know, Ichad Yom, day one. And then day one, uh, 24 hours, God did the big thing and stops. And then God doesn't do anything for 100 million years. And then God goes, okay, time to do something else for day two. And God does the big day two thing in 24 hours. And then there's millions of years gap. And then day three, God does the big thing, right? Can you see the workarounds? Right, all right. So all of, this is, all of this is fascinating. All of this is our efforts to try to reconcile what we see and hear and taste and touch and what we can measure in, in Scripture. I want you to know that I don't believe that Paul is saying, if you don't believe in creationism like Chris Perry does, then you're suppressing the truth, okay? I don't think Paul means that. I think Paul means this. Big picture. That God created the heavens and earth. And that God created man in his image. And man created in his image our morally obligation to work, just as Justin read out of Psalm 95, to literally chase hard after God and to live a life in full pursuit of God. That's what Paul's talking about. And those that suppress that truth, that you can live as the, oh, yeah, 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 God, let's give him the nod, a little nod to God. Thanks for the big guy. Thanks to the old man upstairs. He's so wise. He's so smart. We give him a little nod, little little token across the table. Yep, yo, God. And then we live as though he doesn't matter. And we can do our own thing. It's Christian humanism. You know what I mean by that? Christian humanism. We sprinkle some God on it, but it's basically us. That's the the stuff that Paul is attacking in Romans 1. Christian humanism and the worship of self and that that leads to a destroyed life is what Paul is addressing. That's the, that's the, the problem of suppressing the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident. Phanerao. Which literally means to make plain. To make obvious. To make it evident. Take, it, take the present out of the bag and go, Oh, look, it's a new baseball glove. Thank you, I wanted a baseball glove. Make it evident. God is making himself evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly revealed, made evident, perceived, 
being understood by what has been made so that all mankind has no excuse. And people can't say, God, whoa, 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 God, you can't judge me. Nope, you can't spank me. Because I didn't even know you existed. And it's not fair for you to not exist and then show up on the scene and take out your belt and you're going to give me a whooping because I didn't cut the grass correctly. That's not fair. That's not morally fair, so off with you. I told a story yesterday at, at, at the evening meal, which I love and my family love it, that Lisa, my lovely bride, and they took my glasses, but there you are. I'm blind right now. Uh, I've got new glasses coming in, by the way. Yay, maybe tomorrow I'll get them. Uh, Lisa, when I was in college and seminary, would write me notes, and uh, she'd sneak them in the lunch, you know, lunch bag and all that stuff and uh, and it was her little way a little crumb trail, a little evidence that Lisa's trying to communicate to me that she cares and she knows that the workload I'm under and college and seminary and all of that and that I'm I've got a lot on my plate and she's, it was a little thing that gave evidence that she cared that's what that means um Paul is saying that God is giving us a, a, a breadcrumb trail. God is giving us creation to point us to him. It's, it's, he's saying, I want a relationship with you. And I've created the heavens and the earth as a way of drawing you into me. All right. uh, real quick to make my point clear. In your estimation, who is the most brilliant songwriter of all time? Just pop it out there. The most brilliant songwriters. Anybody? What's that? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Taylor Swift. <laughs> there you go. Paul McCartney, by the way, Paul McCartney, if nothing else, he's probably the smartest businessman in the music industry because while the other Beatles were blowing it on whatever, Pop-Tarts, who would, who would eat Pop-Tarts? Um, Paul was buying a copyright license. He threw all his money toward that. That man owns more royalties to songs he never wrote. Brilliant. All right, Paul McCartney, Beethoven, uh, you know, Aaron Copeland, if you like the work of Aaron Copeland, we can go on and on and on. What is greater, Aaron Copeland or his music? Or Tchaikovsky and his music? Or Rachmaninoff? And his, what's greater, the artist who created it or the score? Obviously the artist. Yeah. Can you imagine meeting Beethoven? Can you imagine asking him to talk about his music, how, how does he arrive? Handel's Messiah, oh my goodness. Can you imagine talking, who wrote that I think, was it 72 hours that was done? I think it was done in 72 hours. Can you imagine sitting down with that man? Tell me about the score, tell me about the, the basic motif and how you develop that. Wow, okay. What if we see the earth as the score? And can you imagine God meeting God? 
who created this place? Or the greatest painter or sculptor? You get the idea. Uh, this is, these are things that point us to God. Everybody turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And this is what, what the psalmist said. <clears throat> David wrote this. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens tell of the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Yom to Yom, in Hebrew, Yom Yom, pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, uh, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a groom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong man, a strong person, to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Back at verse 4. Their line has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. David is saying creation functions like the lyrics to a song that we can listen to, we can look at and see. We can read the words. We can listen to the lyric. And we can say, all of this, the heavens and the earth, point us to God. And if that is the case, and it absolutely is, then I can have faith. And my faith can stand the test of modern culture, and I don't have to deconstruct. I can build my faith up and be strong that God is real. He created the heavens and earth. He gave us his son and that the wisest thing Chris Perry can do is to follow Jesus with all my heart. And then and only then do I reveal that I am a disciple of Jesus. You're the church. You're the body of Christ. From your spiritual gifts, I want you to share from uh, the text of Scripture, Psalm 19, Psalm 95, Psalm 139, uh, Romans 1. It's all through the scriptures, Genesis 1 to 3, why this matters, why the truth and the authority of God's word matters. You're the church. How do we live this out? Why does it matter? Chris, we can look at Genesis 1 as a really, not, a, a really good gospel message. The way that I see it in the young earth, and I don't know if there are theories. Sure. I look at Genesis 1 and I see it as an opportunity to say, look how big God did, look how much he did. Because to explain away in a gap theory or to link them to the creation story puts, puts limitations on God. It says he needed more time to do these things. And when you look at creation, I think the adjacent standpoint from a you know, progressive Christian or someone who wants to include God in their worldview echoes through what Paul talks about God giving them over to their desires and they worship their nature rather than the creator. There's so many times growing up where 
there was the emphasis on the sunset. Like, look at the sunset, look how, and the tendency is to see that as beautiful and not reflect back on the creator of that, or the stars or the things, you know, going overseas and being able to see a whole different set of stars than I would see here. There's a, there's a, there's a risk in worshiping that and saying, look how amazing that is, as opposed to reflecting on those stars, that sunset, the creator of those things decided that I was to be born and know him intimately. Going back to what David says, in, or what the psalmist says, and that you were in, intimately and wonderfully made. And so it's so important for, for me specifically to not get caught up in the beauty of the world. Yes, it was created by God, but to lose the reflection of who that creator was, there's the intoxication of like, man, this is so amazing, but to forget who created it can become it can become dangerous at times. That's so good, Patch. Can I confess that um, my memory, I struggle with it, and yet there are moments I, I oddly hold on to things. In 2014, at the, is it Sochi or Sochi, Russian Olympics? Sochi? Sochi. Is that it? Okay. During the closing ceremonies, they played the score called the, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Polodvian Dance. Polodvian Dance. We're going to go with that. And I thought it was one of the most beautiful melodies I've heard. It's beautiful. And I tried to find that. And I, I just found it about two months ago. So I've been in search of that song for, for 10 years, right? And I found it, and it was great. I finally found it on Spotify, stumbled, it, stumbled over it, looking, listening to Aaron Copeland. And uh, some of his work, which is amazing. That song is beautiful. Still is beautiful to my ears, my heart. Can you imagine meeting the author, the composer? Pat, you're right. Can you imagine? You can see the sunset and be enamored with its beauty, or you can see the sunset, be enamored with its beauty, and let it springboard you into a relationship with God. That's the point of creation. There it is. That is so good, Pat. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. So someone else, why does this matter? You're, thank you, Sloan. Uh, I've got a couple of videos I want to show you guys in the future. One is a six-minute video, and it shows you PhDs at MIT, PhD at Harvard, which is like horrifically secular at Harvard, and, and several other of these, what we would consider to be major academic powerhouse institutions. And there are Christian scientists and PhD PhDs publicly declaring their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they're on the faculties at MIT. They're on the faculties at Harvard and other schools like Cambridge. You know, it's amazing. 
I want to show you guys another, another uh, video soon, may do it next Sunday, on uh, an argument for God that I think is brilliant. So let's close with this. The writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, of proof of things not seen. Verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. Here's a big question. Is it worth it to seek God? Is it worth it? If you honestly believe it's not, then I think you're probably at Christchurch for social reasons. You're here for friendship and community. By the way, which is great. Yes, Lisa. Lisa, that's so good. Did, Lisa, did you know Jesus was a creationist? Did you know he believed his dad created the heavens and the earth in six days? And he, had, he settled that issue. And because of that, and because the created order is something that calls us to worship God, you know what Jesus could say? He could say, he could say guys, hey, 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 you folks that are eat up with worry, come on, look at the sparrows. They don't, they're not begging for something to eat. Look at a flower. Solomon couldn't dress like they, like my father dresses that flower. Jesus was a creationist. And for Jesus, creation points us to God. And he said, look around at the created order. And in so doing, it can calm the anxiety. Because God is big. How big? He created the heavens and the earth big. And if he can tend to a flower... If you contend to a bird, you contend to you. And that's why faith is so very, very essential. Without faith, it's impossible to, believe, uh, to, to see God. Jesus said in talking to Nicodemus that if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. God doesn't want to get us into the test tube to prove if we're worthy or not. We can't get him in the test tube. He is worthy. He'll never fit. This is about faith. And it's about the difference that Jesus Christ makes when he is in us and we've experienced uh, the new birth by faith. It's that admitting our sin problem, believing that Christ is the answer, and see confessing our sins and calling on Jesus to literally save us. And we experience the new birth and it is everything. So, Christ Church, thank you so much. Let me pray over us. Father, I love you and I thank you for everybody that shared. 
Thank you for the truth of your word. You did create the heavens and the earth. And you are in authority. And you gave creation to us as a gift to draw us to you, to draw us into worship. Abba, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind to perceive, and a heart to believe in your son Jesus and what it means to follow him. And I'm asking because of him. In Jesus' name, amen.